consider the following commonplace, extremely familiar scenario. A little boy grows up looking up to his father and imagining one day he will achieve and have all the things that his father has. And his only dream is to simply become like his dad and have all the things in life that make his dad happy. A nice house, a nice family, perhaps a, um, a job that he enjoys, and so on. A nice car, right? So if we just imagine this simple scenario, you know, it might seem a little bit dated, but nevertheless, we can suppose that many still grow up this way. And then if we imagine when this boy reaches, let's say, early adolescence, suddenly his relationship to his father changes. He no longer wants to be just like his dad. Instead, he wants to be himself. He wants to be his own person. Maybe he decides he doesn't want a big house in the suburbs. Uh, he wants to um, you know, live in a, a shared loft in some artsy neighborhood, or he wants to uh, tour the world in a, in a rock band um, and not even have a fixed abode or whatever. So in other words, he starts questioning whether he really wants the things that his father has, and he starts imagining other things that he might want. And in some cases, this might get him into conflict with his dad, right? So he might ask his dad to buy him an electric guitar or, um, you know, some cool leather jacket or something like that. And his dad might refuse. And at this point, they might come into conflict. And this will lead the, through a kind of um, feedback loop to the boy, perhaps rebelling further, starting to see his father as... Um, as mean and overly harsh and um, too strict, right? And so the rebellion spills out into a full-on rejection of his father and a sort of um, rebellion against him as a, as a tyrant who is, who is preventing the boy from becoming his true self. And so for the rest of his teen years, the boy chafes against his father's authority right? Because he wants freedom, he wants autonomy, he wants independence. He doesn't want his father to be able to decide what he gets to have in life. He wants to decide that for himself. And then perhaps we can imagine that once he actually gets out of the house and um, has to figure out how to uh, make a living on his own, perhaps he becomes a bit less rebellious and realizes he has to um, perhaps compromise with his father's, uh, you know, with the, with the model that his father set. In any case, we needn't follow his life too much farther beyond this, but, you know, it's, a, it's an extremely familiar scenario. And the main question I want to draw out of it is, um, when the boy in his early to mid-teens is imagining, he no longer simply models his vision of his own life on the example set by his father or his parents. Instead, he believes he is becoming his own person. He has um, come into his own desires, right? He's discovered there are things that he wants that his parents don't want and perhaps don't even want him to have. 
And there are things he wants out of life that his parents don't seem to be getting out of life, right? So at this point, the boy would appear to have achieved a kind of autonomous desire, right? A desire that is free from the models set by his parents and that is searching in new directions for what he really wants out of life. So if you think about it, though, and if you perhaps try to imagine the parts of your own life that are parallel to this, again, overly neat and oversimplified little anecdote, I think you'll see that it's not quite so simple as this boy's desire becoming fully autonomous, right? Because what actually happens in this time of one's life? Well, what really happens is one starts looking around the world and looking for other models, right? Looking for models who are not one's parents. These could be older siblings closer to home, but they could be um, friends you meet at school, older kids you start admiring. Um, they could also be celebrities. They could be, um, I mentioned the idea that he might decide he doesn't want a house. He wants to tour the world in a rock band. Well, perhaps that's because some rock star has become his idol, right? And so the point would be that it's not as simple as his desire becoming free, autonomous, or entirely individualized. Instead, what's happened is that his desire has moved away from the original model that it followed, right, which were was his father or his parents, and it started to cast around for other models, right, for other examples of lives that people are living that might signal what is desirable, right, that might, might tell him what might I want out of life that might provide an answer to that question? So this basic, um, again, oversimplified scenario I'm offering is, I would say, a relatively straightforward, intuitive illustration of several of the concepts that Girard lays out in his first book, which I have right here, um, published in English in 1965 as Deceit, Desire, and the Novel originally published in French a few years earlier. So in this book, Girard lays out the notion of what he calls in the first chapter, triangular desire. So this concept is a precursor to what he will later call mimetic desire. He does use the terms mimesis and mimetic somewhat um, semi-frequently in this text, but certainly not as frequently as he will in his later work. So his focus in this chapter is on triangular desire. So what is triangular desire? Well, let's consider the example of the boy. He, uh, when he's a little kid, he thinks about what he wants in life. And what he, when he thinks of what the objects are that he wants in life, a car, a house, um, you know, a fun job, uh, he's not simply arriving at that determination directly, right? He's not, there's not a straight line between him and these objects he imagines that he wants. Instead, the line passes through his father, right? So his father has or wants these things. And so looking up to him, the boy also turns his eye towards these things, right? And so this forms a triangle. On one hand, we have the subject of desire, in this case, the boy, on the other hand, we have the object of desire, the house, the car, the job. But then we also have this third figure, the mediator. So the mediator is the one who models my desire, who is, is the one from whom I obtain or borrow my desire for whatever it is that I want.
So I think the best way to understand this is simply that no desire is purely spontaneous because it is always to some extent mediated in some form or another. So Girard is, and I believe the relative simplicity and intuitiveness with which I can illustrate this concept demonstrates that it is not a particularly counterintuitive or um, convoluted way of thinking about the nature of desire, particularly if we compare it to, say, some aspects of psychoanalytic theory, which Girard was, as we'll discuss later, both learning from and in some ways uh, critiquing. So this is a, um, in some sense, straightforward account of how desire functions. And yet, at some point, Girard refers to its terrible simplicity. So I think the point here would be that it is not something that we tend to be particularly comfortable recognizing. In other words, even though it is relatively simple to grasp, and we can certainly recognize it in some cases, when it matters, I think most of us want to claim that our desires are in fact spontaneous, are not, are not set by another, right? but are in fact the product of our own autonomous determination. So in other words, while this structure is relatively easy to grasp, I think Girard wants to argue that in practice, it, it proves quite difficult to grasp because people do not want to imagine themselves as imitators of the desires of others. So this is, I think, an important point, that on one level, this seems relatively easy to see and to grasp, but on another level, particularly when it relates to our apprehension of our own desires for things, it is actually quite dis difficult to grasp. And in fact, in many ways, we are blocked. We, are, we have a constitutive blindness to this particular structure um, that determines the nature of our, our desire for whatever we might desire. So, this family drama that I just laid out is, in a way, a kind of prototype of the process that Girard sees unfolding across history. And again, at risk of oversimplifying, his position is essentially that um, in traditional or pre-modern societies, we are more in the situation of the, or, or human beings are more in the situation of the young boy. That is because there are relatively few fixed models to whom we look and from whom we um, can determine what we can and cannot desire or should or should not desire. So this is the situation called external mediation this is when the mediator is someone who is structurally placed above us and is therefore someone who we cannot imagine ourselves taking his or her place easily. So the relationship of the child to the parent is perhaps the clearest example of this. Now, of course, the complication would come in if we think about the Freudian Oedipus complex where the son imagines himself taking the place of the father. And Girard, as we'll see over and over again, is interested in this scenario. But there are various reasons, which we'll get into in a later week, that he rejects this particular account. But 
again, a risk of oversimplifying the position is that just as the boy um, can imagine himself eventually becoming like his father, right? Can imagine himself eventually becoming like his father by obtaining some of the things that his father has. He cannot imagine himself simply being his father, right? And so as a result of this, at least in this relatively naive phase of his life, there can't really be any conflict between them. Now, as we saw, eventually there is conflict between them. But um, the point here would be that in this more hierarchical social arrangement that we can see in traditional societies where people's positions in the social hierarchy were relatively fixed, the possibility of... um, of this kind of um, delusion of autonomy that the boy experiences when he he believes that he is the author of his own desire. Um, The point is that this kind of scenario is relatively uncommon in a pre-modern society where one's position in the social hierarchy is fixed, which means that one knows exactly where to look for models. So we saw um, another variation on this idea in the essay on innovation and repetition, where the idea was that in a pre-modern society, um, innovation is kind of seen as a bad thing, right? Why? Because it means deviating from the models that are understood to be um, transcendent and fixed. So if you innovate, then you are in some way rejecting the models set for you by the hierarchical society in which you exist. So here we're um, essentially working with the same concept that this kind of idea of an autonomous or let's say innovative, individualistic, spontaneous desire that strikes out into new territory is generally understood as um, as dangerous and in need of of strict controls in in a pre-modern society, and so this is the scenario, the basic scenario of external mediation, right? Where the mediator is external to me, in other words, is um, placed at a distance from me, is is external to the kind of stratum or sphere in which I operate. So the point here would be that. Um, just as the boy, as he grows older, comes to value the autonomy of his desire, the, the seeming spontaneity of it, and the idea that it is not simply a kind of slavish imitation of his father's desire, would be parallel to this historical process by which innovation comes to be seen as a positive thing, right? Because innovation becomes to, comes to be seen as a positive thing, at the same time that individualism, autonomy, and so on, all become to be um, valued and highly prized. So, as we discussed in relation to innovation and repetition, there is kind of a trick here, which is that it turns out that when you enter into that realm of a kind of fetishization of autonomous, spontaneous individual desire, right, which is not imitative, right? Which is explicitly laid out as as original and different. Precisely when you were in that territory, 
as Girard discusses in Innovation and Repetition and in Deceit Desire in the novel, you are in fact potentially more imitative than you ever were when you were um, when you were conscious of being a kind of apprentice to someone else's desire. But this imitativeness is now something that you must conceal, that you must deny, right? And this basically means that your relationship to imitation becomes far more fraught and complicated because the extent of your imitativeness actually comes to be correlated with your delusional belief in your own authenticity, originality, autonomy, etc. So this is, Girard argues, a strictly modern um, situation, and it is the source of what he quotes the French novelist Stendhal as calling the modern passions which are jealousy, envy, and impotent hatred. So jealousy, envy, and impotent hatred all have to do with seeing some other who would appear to have something that I want to have and being stymied by that relationship, right? So this is not the, the calm and beneficent relationship of apprenticeship that I sketched out in an oversimplified way with the father and the son. It is a situation in which my model becomes in some way my enemy, right? Because we are rivals for the same um, objects of desire, right? Which we both want to lay claim to. And because this model is no longer somebody who's actually set above me in a social hierarchy, um, I believe myself to be equally entitled to the things that my model wants or has. And this is why we become rivals and potentially enemies to the death. So this is the basic evolution that Girard is laying out. He's claiming it's a historical evolution that you can track basically from the early modern, let's say 16th, 17th century, the time in which Cervantes, the earliest author he discusses was writing, and the modern period basically around the early 20th century with Proust, who's the latest author historically who he discusses in this book, with, with a few exceptions. If you read towards the end, he, he does address a few later modernist authors in the final chapters. But the main authors he discusses in this text are Cervantes, Stondal, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, and Proust. So these authors do represent an evolution, and this is the evolution from some form of external mediation in which the mediator is at some distance from the subject of desire, to internal mediation in which the distance between them has been reduced to the minimum, and the result is a kind of unrelenting conflict. And this can take the form of the kind of perverse and bizarre enmities of characters in Dostoevsky. It can take the form of the intense and grotesque snobbery of the salons, the French, uh, the Parisian salons, where the sort of um, aspirants to high society 
um, engage in these constant games of one-upmanship and petty feuds uh, in much of Proust's work. So this evolution, again, from external to internal mediation is an evolution that he charts specifically through the evolution of the novel as a literary form. And this is quite important because let's think about the original French title of this book for a second, which, as I said, is um, Deceit, Desire in the Novel in English, but in French is Mensonge Romantique, which would be Romantic Lie. So hence, that's translated, I suppose, into deceit. Um, so, mensonge romantique, et, in other words, and vérité romanesque. So, romantic lie and novelistic truth. So, this title has quite a different ring to it than Deceit, Desire, in the Novel, because it counterposes these two sort of structural opposites, the romantic lie and the novelistic truth. So the basic concept of this book is that there is a pervasive ideology, which is the romantic lie. So the romantic lie is not merely visible in literature. It is the guiding ideology of modern culture. And this is the ideology of autonomous individualism, in which the individual is a, a sort of isolated, spontaneous, and passionate um, sort of individual who uh, pursues the desires that he or she sets for him or herself, not the desires he or she learns from social superiors. So this is romantic individualism. So it's very much related to the um, the doctrine of innovation that we talked about in relation to the um, reading from last week, which we could see in the kind of business world and tech world version today as kind of just the latest um, iteration of this longstanding ideology in which what is prized is spontaneous individual desire, right? I want to be me. I don't want to just be like someone else. I just want to be like myself. So this, you know, which I associated early on with the kind of teenage subject, um, is perhaps only uh, most visible in the teenage subject because they haven't learned how to conceal their fixation on this kind of individualism. But for Girard, it's the pervasive lie of modern culture, which is the denial of the mediation of desire. In other words, the denial that desire must pass through this triangular structure, that there must be mediators who we imitate, whether we like it or not. And if we don't like it, that could simply mean that we become even more imitative, even as we're denying it. So, going back to what I was saying about the novel, um, it's important that this is verité romanesque, novelistic truth. So there's a paradoxical ring to that, which is not in the English title, which is that these works of fiction are revealing to us a truth, right? They're a source of truth. But the question is, what kind of truth, right? Um, how can fiction tell us the truth? Well, what Girard wants to argue is that 
fiction can tell us the truth about desire. So the truth that the novels offer us, this novelistic truth, is fundamentally a truth about the nature of desire. And it is the truth that contradicts this dominant modern ideology of autonomous individualism and spontaneous desire. So the novel, he argues, is a form that can reveal what our culture in general attempts to conceal. Now, there is a slight complication to this, which is he argues that many novels uh, do not, in fact, reveal this, right? Plenty of them um, continue to peddle this illusion of romantic individualism and spontaneous desire. So these are what he would call romantic novels, right? So these are novels that are... Um, that are faithful to this romantic lie. Whereas what he calls the great novels, right, the, the novels that he judges to be of, of greater aesthetic as well as intellectual significance, are the ones in which this lie is debunked, right, and which the truth of desire, in other words, the omnipresence of the mediator, the fact that our desire even and especially when we feel it to be most spontaneous, is mediated through another. That what these novels have in common is that they, is that they reveal this, right? This, this hidden undercurrent of modern societies. So one thing that may be tricky about this book is if you're unfamiliar with the texts that he discusses, he obviously seems to assume some familiarity on the part of his readers with, again, these authors, Cervantes, Stondal, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, and Proust. Um, so that may be somewhat tricky, but I did want to assign this anyway because I think it's an important illustration of something I brought up previously, which is the way that Girard works with evidence and what he thinks different sort of evidence can teach us about the world, the nature of social reality, the structure of desire, and so on. So his argument here is that, and he's not, um, he's not the first to make this sort of an argument, right? Um, in fact, Freud himself, as well as Nietzsche, to name two major um, Figures who had a notable influence on Girard both highly praised the capacity of literature to reveal the functioning of human psychology, right? For Nietzsche, the, the great novelists like Dostoevsky of the 19th century were the only psychologists really worth paying attention to. And so Girard adopts this position as well, right? He sees these, um, he sees these novels as offering a more profound insight into human psychology than Freud himself, right? And this is, this is, in a sense, part of his critique of Freud is that Freud actually eludes and covers up the truths that he partly discovers through his encounters with literature, right? So Freud makes his great discoveries in part through literature, as does Girard, but... Girard claims Freud then 
basically shies away from really recognizing what he's discovered and creates this kind of obscure technical jargon that leads us astray from really understanding the, the truth about desire that these novels have revealed. So, again, I think it's important to recognize that Girard is crediting the novels with the insights that the book is offering, right? He is placing himself, in a sense, in a position of apprenticeship because he's claiming that these novels themselves discover this structure of desire. And his role as a critic is merely to articulate it, right? And he says more or less exactly this several times. So I think we'll see as we move ahead that this relationship to textual evidence, where the evidence that he works with, he tends to credit with the insights. He does not claim to be the one who is illuminating or making sense of these previously obscure texts. Instead, he is claiming that the texts themselves are the source of illumination, and he is merely reflecting that illumination. So one thing to look out for in this passage, even if you're not um, familiar with many of the texts that he discusses, is the way that he is using this kind of evidence. And, you know, what you think of his claims for the insights offered by this sort of fiction. Because I think this is one of the things on which his arguments stand and fall, right? In other words, if he is not persuasive in revealing these texts as the source of these insights, then he's subject to the criticism made by some detractors that he is simply monomaniacally fixated on this particular type of desire which may exist but isn't as pervasive as he claims, and that he's imposing this on the texts. So his, his position is that he is not doing this, right? That he is, um, that he is in fact, discovering this insight that is already present in the text that he's working with. And something else to take note of and keep in mind is that the basic contrast he draws here between romantic lie and novelistic truth, or between romantic fictions which conceal the presence of the mediator, right, and which propagate the myth or the ideology of spontaneous, unmediated desire, right? That on one hand, those sorts of texts, which essentially um, are shaped by mimetic desire rather than um, allowing us to see mimetic desire, right? They are, they are um, in a sense, distorted in their perspective by their inability to recognize the presence of the mediator or their unwillingness to recognize it, which he argues is something common to all of us in modern times. And then these other texts which reveal the presence of the mediator. So this contrast is quite central. And something to, again, take note of here is that he does something very similar in his treatment in later work with on one hand, mythology, and on the other hand, the Bible. Right, so mythology is that which can serve as a kind of evidence of 
the pervasiveness of mimetic desire as well as, as we'll get to later, um, collective violence. But they serve as evidence of that, and we touched on this a bit last week, because they engage in a kind of cover-up, right? Because they, um, instead of revealing it, they conceal it, right? And so what we can find evidence of is their sort of subterfuge, which attempts to prevent mimetic desire and collective violence from coming to light, right? So that's mythology, which is, again, infused by a kind of ideological lie, right? That um, there's something that needs to have the lid kept on it, and these myths serve to do that, right? Whereas the scriptural revelation, right, the biblical texts, he understands in very similar terms to how he understands these novelistic texts. And in fact, if you read Things Hidden, where he you know, works both with biblical literature and with modern writers like Proust, once again, you, know, you can see that he really acknowledges them as the source of his major insights in a similar sort of way. So again, this question of how he works with evidence is um, highly significant here and will continue to be throughout this course. So I think if we can take note of this first instance of it, we can then come back to it when we read examples of him working with other sorts of evidence. To wrap up, I just wanted to um, quote something that I think is a particularly fascinating quote from this book, which is that at some point he says that in modern times, we believed ourselves to be guided by enlightened self-interest. So in other words, we, we, again, we believe ourselves to be autonomous individuals who were not deluded by um, myths and superstitions. We understand what the world is really like, and therefore we, um, we can pursue self-interest, right, rather than existing under the tutelage of higher authorities, right? And so this, of course, again, is what Gerard wants to debunk. And what he, but what he says is that what we get instead of enlightened self-interest or what the belief in enlightened self-interest leads us to is obscurantist other interest. So underlying the myth of enlightened self-interest is this obscurantist other interest. So obscurantist other interest would be an interest or desire that is determined by another, that is according to another, but that we, in an obscurantist manner, fail to recognize as such, right? So we are deluded as to the nature of our own desire. We believe it to be autonomous when it is, in fact, perhaps more other-directed than these, um, you know, more primitive peoples we imagine to be in the thrall of irrational hierarchies. So this notion of obscurantist other interest is central to how he understands the concept of the underground, which is the realm of obscurantist other interest. And I will be discussing that in a separate lecture, which is about Girard's discussion of Dostoevsky and his discussion of Nietzsche in the other essay uh, that I assigned for this week, Superman in the Underground. So thank you. And uh, again, to be continued in a second lecture, which will 
address this notion of obscurantist other interest.